0: If you haven't been with us for the last few weeks, you won't know that we've been in a series called Spirit Fruit, where we're looking at the fruit of the Spirit. Um, So for those of you who've been Christians for a while, and if you've gone to Sunday school, you will probably have had, I don't know, those paper trees that you put on the wall and you have to peg different parts of the fruit of the Spirit onto the tree. You can tell I'm an ex-kids worker. Um, But we're basically looking at a passage in Galatians 5, which talks about this stuff called the fruit of the Spirit. And to boil it down, it's basically, what does it mean to live the Christian life? If you're wondering what the fruit of the Spirit's about, it's basically, what does it mean to be a Christian and to live every day as a Christian? How do you do that? Now that we're free and we've been set free in Christ, as we were singing earlier, how is it that we now live in light of that? And so we're going to look at a a passage in a book called Galatians, which is a letter written by a guy called Paul in about 49 AD to a church that he'd planted um, in a place called Galatia. And basically what happened is Paul had started this church and he preached the gospel, he preached the good news to these guys who generally, most of them were not Jewish and he preached to them that actually now Jew and non-Jew can both come to God because of what Jesus, the Messiah, because what Jesus, the, the Jewish king had done by dying and rising from the dead. And he proclaimed this message that Jesus was the new Lord of the world and that everyone, regardless of their background, was free to come and be part of his people and to be transformed and to enjoy the freedom that comes with that. So these guys seemed to like it and they all joined in, they got baptised, they became part of the Christian family and then Paul went away and did some other work. And what happened is after a little while, some, it seems like some Jewish Christians from Jerusalem came along and started saying to these guys, well, I know Paul said it's all about Jesus. But actually to really be a Christian, you have to become a Jew. So if you're a man, that means you're going to have to be circumcised. Uh, for all of you, you're going to have to obey the Jewish law. You're going to have to obey the ritual requirements. You're going to have to eat certain kinds of food because otherwise you can't truly be part of God's people. You can't truly be made right before God. And Paul hears about this. Now, if you've read or if you were in the series last year we did on Galatians, you'll realise he was not happy at all about this and has some very, very strong language for them, particularly in the, in the passage that we're reading today, just beforehand, Paul's basically saying, these guys are preaching circumcision to you. He says, if they, if they want to be that holy, they might as well go all the way and chop the whole lot off. It's, it's strong language. Paul feels very, very strongly about what's happening. But, that being said, he's been proclaiming this message of freedom from the law. He says, you don't have to follow the Jewish law if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you've been set free from what's holding you back. So if you're a Jew, you're no longer bound by the law. If you're a Gentile, you never were bound by the law, and you don't want to go under that. But he, so he's been nailing freedom back home. And then comes the question, well, if we're not living under the law, if Jews are not living under the law anymore, and if Gentiles never were supposed to and are not supposed to go under the law, how is it that we live as a Christian? And that's the question he's trying to answer in this passage. So if you want to open up your Bibles in Galatians 5, and I'm going to read from verses 13 to 26... And what I'm going to do is just explain what the passage is talking about, um, try and be be as brief as I can, and then I'm going to look at the last three manifestations of the fruit of the Spirit. So Simon, the first week, looked at love, joy, peace. Steph, last week, looked at um, patience, kindness, goodness. I always remember them in order. I can't do isolated parts of it. And I'm going to look at faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control today. Does that sound good? Yep. Yep. Okay. So, verse 13 to 26 in chapter 5. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to, Jesus, to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So probably a fairly familiar passage to a lot of you if you've been Christians for a while. But what, is, what, what does Paul mean by this? What's the big deal? So I'm just going to run through the passage quickly, like I said, and then look at the last three manifestations of what it, what it looks like when you walk by the Spirit. So as i said, Paul's been nailing back the idea of, uh, that we've been set free in Christ. He says the whole idea, if you were, if you were around a year ago when we looked at Galatians, you remember we, we looked at what the point of the law was. And I, and, and I explained that the law was given to God's people for a particular time to be a little bit like a babysitter, to keep them until the Messiah had come. And Paul's saying, now the Messiah's come. So the law, as a babysitter, it doesn't have that role anymore. So it's really stupid to try and put yourself under the law. It would be like an 18-year-old getting babysat by someone again. It's just That's just not what you do. And so Paul's saying, you're free from it. Do not put yourself under that kind of yoke. And And if you're not a Jew, you've been set free... From all of the things that used to enslave you. Like, I just thought that time of praise was amazing. Just fits in exactly with the idea of freedom that you get in this passage. That we've been set free. That song that Alex bought was amazing. Once my hands were in chains, once my feet were bound, and then Jesus came. And I think that is kind of Galatians in a nutshell, basically. Your feet were bound, and Jesus has come along and set you free. And so Paul's nailing this idea. He's saying, You're free, you are free, but there's a but there. But do not use that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So Paul's saying, okay, well, the law, we don't need the law to supervise us anymore. So does that mean we just run all the way over here and say, yay, yeah, I can do what I want. I can just do whatever I want. I'm going to go and sleep around and get drunk and just do whatever I want because I haven't got the law governing me anymore. And Paul says, no, that's not the way you live the Christian life. Just because you've been set free from the law, it doesn't mean that then releases you to do whatever you want, basically, to just run wild I think we think of freedom in our culture and that's the, that's the picture we have we have this picture of someone doing whatever they want whenever they want kind of just no boundaries nothing and Paul's saying that's not, that's not Christian freedom that's not what it looks like to be set free in Christ instead what Paul says he says but through love serve one another For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Paul says, you've been set free from the law, you're not under that anymore, and you've been set free to serve one another. And you might look at that and think, that doesn't sound like freedom. That sounds really restricting, that sounds boring, that sounds really annoying, that sounds like I don't get to do what I want to do. And that's because, like I said, we've misunderstood freedom in our culture. Biblically, freedom... Is not freedom to do whatever you want, whenever you want, at like just whatever you want, however much it annoys other people. Freedom in the Bible is being set free from what was stopping you being everything you were created to be. So, kind of, I suppose that the different kind of imagery would be the idea of a child who's set free to eat as many cookies cookies as he wants. And that's what the world sees as freedom. It's like that child can now stuff their face with as many cookies as they want and get as fat as they want, and that's fine. That's not biblical freedom. Biblical freedom is the image of a bird being shut in a cage and being set free. A bird was made to fly. If you put a bird in a cage, it's not able to do what it was made for. Okay, so he said you were created in the image of God to be a certain way, and that is to serve one another, to love one another, to lay your life down for one another. And so that is what Paul means by freedom. He says you've been set free from the law, or if you weren't a Jew, you've been set free from everything that was holding you back. And now you're free because you've given your life to Christ to do what you were created to do. And so the question now becomes, well, how do we not live under the law? Because that's not what we want to do. Paul's very clear on that. Yet at the same time, not live by just doing whatever we want. How do we actually get to the point where we're serving one another, where we're loving one another, where we're not, as Paul says, giving any opportunity to the flesh, where we're not giving an opportunity to this? Basically, the flesh means this kind of natural desire without God. It's basically humanity in its fallen weakness. It's quite a difficult idea to to convey. Some translations have the sinful nature. Most keep it as the flesh. It's basically, it's not physicality. It's not like muscle. It's about The the nature of human beings without gods. And Paul says, how is it that we don't live under the law, but yet at the same time we don't gratify the desires of the flesh by just going crazy and doing whatever we do? And the answer, verse 16, is this. But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So the promise here is not under the law, not gratifying the flesh. Though we don't want those those 2 what we're going to do instead is we're going to walk by the Spirit, and if we walk by the Spirit, we will not end up giving in to the desires of the flesh. That's quite a remarkable promise. I remember um, Matt Fox a few years ago, kind of just uh, he just highlighted it to me. He said, "Do you realise that verse says if you walk by the Spirit, you won't sin?" And I thought well, that's right. I remember Steph preaching a few years ago. I think it was on, on One John. It says at the beginning of One John two, "I'm writing these things so you do not sin." And he just said. According to this passage, it's possible for a Christian not to sin. And there was just kind of like silence in the room where everyone was like, really? And it's true. And at the same time, if anyone claims that they're not, they haven't got sin, they're a liar. That's what John says. But at the same time, there's this, if we were to walk according to the spirit every single day, we would not sin. That just wouldn't happen. And so this promise here is, is actually really remarkable. Just the idea, if you walk by the spirit, you won't end up giving into that at all. And so the question is, what is walking by the Spirit? If that will allow us not to gratify the desires of the flesh, what does it actually mean to walk by the Spirit? Because that sounds like quite a good thing, doesn't it? I think as a Christian, you don't particularly want to gratify the desires of the flesh. I imagine it probably didn't take too much convincing for you to realize that actually being in Christ and being a Christian doesn't mean going that way. It probably didn't take too much for you to go, really? Really? I can't just do what I want. But a lot of us are probably sat here thinking, what does it mean then to walk by the Spirit? What does it mean to actually live a life where I'm not gratifying the desires of the flesh? And I think... uh, a good example of this would be I I watched I was watching the London Marathon on iPlayer a few weeks ago. If you've got ten minutes to spare, then it's a nice short program to watch. About four hours in, there was this interview with a guy who basically ran the marathon and he was blind, um, which I thought was quite remarkable. And the way he did it is he would have someone who ran at the same pace of him as him for the whole time, telling him where to go, because if this guy just can't see anything, just starts running. Sooner or later he's going to end up falling into the Thames. That's just like, you, you can't run, the whole, you would have no idea where to go. So he needs a running partner with him who's going to run alongside him for the whole way and is going to say, right, you need to turn left now. Now you need to go, you're just about to cross London Bridge, you need to take right after that. Now you need to go this way and he's going to run alongside him for the whole marathon, taking him all the way through. And I thought, it's not a perfect illustration, but I thought that, in a sense, that kind of encapsulates what it is to walk by the Spirit. It's not like the guy just carried him the whole way. I don't think we'd be very impressed if we, if the, the interview was going, I was like, yes, I'm blind, I run the of Marathon because this guy carried me the whole way. You'd be more impressed with the guy who carried him than the, the guy who actually claims to have run the marathon. He didn't just carry him. And in the same way, when you become a Christian, your life does not just become floating through life as if there's no effort required or anything. That guy had to Flip in run and do a lot of training. But he could not have done that if his partner wasn't running with him. And walking by the spirit's a little bit the same. Paul would not have written this passage to warn people to live by the Spirit if it wasn't possible not to walk by the Spirit as a Christian and to and to kind of veer off course and go the other way. So he's saying, actually, you need to constantly be walking with almost like with the spirit running with you and saying, here's where I want you to go, here's what I want you to do. And again, that sounds like a nice illustration, but it still might not quite make sense how that actually works. And there are lots and lots of things you can do to kind of be running alongside the Spirit. But one of the things that Steph highlighted last week, and I think is really important to highlight, is actually what do you think about? Where do you set your mind? What is it that you think about on a daily basis? So in Romans 8, Paul, who same, same guy, writes this. He says, those who live according to their flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul's saying, Those who are in the flesh, sinful desires, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. Makes sense. Those who are who walk by the who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit it's like that guy running the marathon he could he could have just kept running with his with his partner running alongside him but not listening to what he was saying he had to set his mind onto what his running partner was saying and the same way as a christian you want to set your mind on the things of the spirit which will which will involve meditating on the gospel Thinking about what Jesus has done for you, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, memorizing scripture, praying, spending time with God. And all of those things mean that little by little, you'll get used to the idea of walking alongside the spirit. And that when the Holy Spirit says, move left, you need to take a left at the next, at the next road, you will know exactly what to do because you've built a lifestyle of walking by the spirit. And I just think that that idea of fixing your mind is absolutely key. Because I find that that's when I start slipping away. It's when I stop thinking about the things of the Spirit. When I stop setting my mind actively and I just start going my own way, slowly drifting off. It's not always, it's not always kind of big deal stuff where you just go, right, I'm going the other way. It's often just a drift. You stop thinking, you stop thinking, and before you know it, you've ended up landing in the Thames. It's, it happens subtly. But the call here is to fix your mind on the things of the Spirit. To run alongside the Spirit as He's talking to you. So we've got, that's what Paul tells us to do. Walk by the Spirit, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. But why? Why is it that if you walk by the Spirit, you're not going to gratify the desires of the flesh? Because I could decide to take on a good habit. I could decide, okay, I'm going to go to the gym three times a week. How is that going to help me with a problem that's completely unrelated? Can you see that? Just because you walk by the Spirit, how is that going to stop you automatically doing the doing what the flesh desires. And I'm going to need a little bit of help here. So um, if I can have Bex and Dave White to come out, I'll explain what's going to happen. Basically, verses 17 to 18. So Bex, you could stand there and... Fantastic. It's like these guys rehearsed already. Um, They haven't. (laughs) By the way, I don't get people to rehearse before coming up. It would be a little bit intense. Um, Verses 17 to 18, Paul says this. So, okay, 16. I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for because the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. So Dave is going to represent the flesh. Sorry, you had to be the bad guy in this one. <laughs> and Bex is going to represent the spirit. Okay, so some people may, may end up thinking, well, surely you can walk by the spirit, but still give in to the desires of the flesh. As if they're kind of just, I don't know, they're on the same kind of path. But actually, Paul says, no, the spirit, and the flesh are completely opposed to each other. So I thought what kind of illustration would work for this? And I thought maybe swimming pool lanes could do the job. Only problem with swimming pool lanes is you kind of just have to not really look where you're going and you've swum into the next lane. And I thought actually warfare analogy, which Paul is using here, reminded me of trenches. Anyone like, if you've done World War One history, the way they did fighting is they'd build these massive trenches all the way along, and then the enemy would build another massive trench all the way along. And the guys would just sit there and wait, and then attack each other from time to time. And that's the idea that's going on. It's almost like you've got the trench of the spirit, and then the trench of the flesh, and they're in complete opposition to one another. Bex does not like Dave, and Dave does not like Bex. That, not in real life, just for the sake of this. They are in opposition to one another. They're fighting against each other. And so Paul says, they're opposed to one another. So if you walk by the spirit, if I'm in this trench, Unless I'm an absolute lunatic, I'm not going to get up on my own and walk over no man's land because I'm going to get shot down. That's kind of how it works in war. If you're in that trench, you're not going to be in the trench of the flesh. If you're in the trench of the flesh, you're not going to be in the trench of the spirit. That's not how, like, they're completely separate things. So that's why if you walk by the spirit, you can't gratify the desires of the flesh. It's impossible. You would have to decide to get out and run across and jump in the other trench which is exactly what we tend to struggle with doing on a daily basis which is why it's really important to understand they're completely separate which is why the solution to not to walking according to the flesh is not grit your teeth and try and do your best the solution is change trenches go into the trench of the spirit walk by the spirit and um uh, sorry where am i Okay, and Paul says, he says, they are in opposition to one another to stop you from doing the things you want to do. If we could have the, oh, we've got it up. Um, so the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, I think we often read that verse and think, yes, I really, I, I really want to walk by the spirit, but the flesh is stopping me. And that is true. That's partly what this verse is saying. But we often forget that the opposite is true as well. Paul doesn't say because the flesh stops you doing what you want to do by the Spirit. He says they're opposed to each other, so you can't do the things you want to do. Which means if you're in this trench, you might want to do the things of the Spirit. You're not going to be able to. If you're in this trench, (laughs) don't you keep me. If you're in this trench, you might want to do the things of the flesh. But because you're walking by the Spirit, you won't be able to do the things you want to do in your kind of natural fleshly self and that's what paul's saying here we've got to get the balance otherwise what happens is we have this massive defeatist mode where we go i just can't do it it's just not possible there's no way the the, the flesh is too strong and paul's saying no no the opposite's true as well if you walk according to the spirit you won't gratify the desires of the flesh does that make sense so what does it look like then what does it actually look like when you decide to set your mind on the things of the Spirit and think about the things of God, remember the gospel, and walk by the Spirit? And it looks like this. And, um, and what does it also look like sorry, what, when you walk according to the flesh? What's kind of like? What, what are the things that these different ways of walking look like? And the first half, Paul says in verses 19 uh, to 23, so he says, now the works of the flesh are evident. If you walk in this... In this particular trench, it's evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. Doesn't sound pretty. Doesn't sound like the kind of thing that you're thinking, I really want to do that. But actually all you have to do is just pick up OK Magazine or just look around and you realise that actually out of... Our our human fallen nature, that is the kind of things that we would naturally tend to do if God was not helping us. That's what it looks like when you follow the spirit, uh, the, the flesh, sorry. And Paul says, this is sobering, I warn you, as I've warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That means if your life is spent in this trench, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's sobering. If your life is characterized by envy, drunkenness, orgies, sensuality, sexual immorality, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You reap what you sow. Paul gives an analogy in chapter six, if we could have the the next passage up. So if you're anyone who's any done any agriculture here. Ruth, Ruth knows what I'm talking about with agriculture. She often quizzes me on different tree types, and I'm like, I have no idea what that tree is, Ruth. But Ruth knows her, her trees and her seeds, and if Ruth wants to grow, sorry, using you here for the illustration, if Ruth wants to grow strawberries, she's not going to end up sl- um, sowing a sycamore tree seed. That makes no sense. She wouldn't say, I want to grow strawberries. I have some brilliant sycamore seed tree um, seeds here. I'm going to sow them, and then a few months later go, why are there no strawberries? This is really weird. They're like little shoots. It's like they're going to grow into a big tree, but I'm pretty sure I wanted strawberries. And Paul says, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. If you sow a particular kind of seed, you end up getting a particular kind of plant. And Paul's saying, Don't be deceived. Don't be stupid. If you spend your life sowing, according to the flesh, drunkenness, envy, rivalries, dissension, sexual immorality, sensuality, you will reap destruction. However, if you sow according to the Spirit, love, joy, peace, spending time with God, focusing on the things of God, you will end up growing something which looks exactly like the Spirit. Yes, that makes sense? Fruit of the Spirit... Just think about it basically. Fruit is what something produces. The fruit of the Spirit is what the Spirit produces when a believer lives by the Spirit. In fact, the word's singular. I mean, it's it's not that big a deal, but the word is just, it's fruit of the Spirit. In other words, it's what the Spirit produces when you live according to the Spirit. It produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. That's what it looks like. Thanks, guys. You can sit down or you're going to be standing here right the way to the end. <laughs> Cheers. So they're completely opposed to one another. And that's what it looks like to live in both categories. We don't want this, this side. I think you, you hear that list and you think, no, I definitely don't want that. It doesn't take much convincing for a Christian to think, yeah, I'm not particularly up for living my life like that. But the fruit of the Spirit, however, you might hear that list and you might think, that, sounds, that actually sounds really boring. You might think love, joy, peace, but it just sounds standard. You might think, if you were to have written that list and put the fruit of the Spirit is and fill in, what kind of things would you have put? I imagine I would have put stuff like signs and wonders, powerful miracles, legs growing, that kind of stuff. And Paul is all up for that, and I'm all up for that, and God is all up for that. But Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, and so on i've lost my train of train of them there it's stuff that looks so normal and sometimes to the human eye looks boring but god is far more interested in those than he is in how many miracles you are able to do god's interested in miracles but he's not primarily interested in the gift that he's given you it'd be like a, a parent giving you a gift and saying right now i'm going to judge the standard of your life based on the quality of the gift i've given you that'd be a little bit weird if you just you give your kid a ferrari They've kind of got a little bit of an advanced footing on the parent who gives their kid a toy car. God doesn't look at the gift and say, now that's great. That That is a really good prophetic gift. I gave you a massive prophetic gift. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my kingdom and look at someone else and say, yeah, you didn't have as big a prophetic gift. I didn't give you as much kind of prophetic anointing as that guy. That's not going to do. God looks, what did you do with that gift? And we're going to look, I think we're going to look at the Gift of the Spirit, are we? Okay, we're going to look at the gift of the Spirit over the, like in the next three weeks. But the idea is if, if we got the gift, but we haven't got the fruit, then I'm not going to stand before God on Judgment Day and God's not going to ask me, how was the teaching gift I gave you? He's going to ask me, how did you use the teaching gift? He's going to ask me, were you faithful? Were you patient? Did you use it with love? Did you use it with kindness? Did you use it with gentleness or were you angry all the time at people? That's the kind of thing God's interested in. Paul writes in, he's got these three chapters in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 where he he encourages the Corinthians to use spiritual gifts and to pursue them, but sandwiched in the middle. It's it's, It's like this sandwich of scripture. You've got desire gifts, desire gifts, and in the middle, you've got the chapter that you generally only hear read out at weddings. If I speak in the languages of men and of angels, but have not love, I am like a clashing symbol. Paul says, if you haven't got the fruit, you know what, the the gifts are not worth it. There's a much better way, and that's the way where you walk according to the Spirit, and you might have a really, really powerful prophetic anointing, or you might be someone who has the gift of serving, and are faithfully just sweeping the floor after a Sunday meeting. I'll tell you what, if the guy who sweeps the floor is growing in the fruit of the Spirit more than the guy who prophesies to nations, that's the guy that God's going to give the biggest clap to on Judgment Day. That's what God's interested in. And so we're going to look at the last three manifestations of the fruit of the spirit, which is faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then we're going to wrap up things after that. So first of those, which is as we walk by the spirit, we will produce this. It's a promise. It's not the kind of thing you have to force yourself really hard. You force yourself to walk by the spirit. These kind of things crop up. That's what happens with fruit. Faithfulness. Faithfulness is, it's kind of a, big deal I suppose because faithlessness is one of the biggest things in our culture like it's almost a you just have to watch a few films of that glorify the idea of cheating on someone you know the ones I mean the kind of films where you get to the end of the film and you catch yourself being happy for the person who ended up cheating on their husband because they got a better one and we think, that's not right. But our, it's like our culture thrives on the idea of faith, faithlessness or the idea of pointing the finger when someone's been faithless. Faithfulness is not something that we're massively familiar with in our culture. But faithfulness is the idea of trustworthiness or loyalty. It means you, can, you stick something out. You can be depended on. You can keep on going. It's why I, I get a little bit emotional at weddings. Um, I admit it. I, I do. Generally because when the vows are going on, I see a picture of the gospel that I don't see in many other places. Whether vows, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. I doubt I'd get emotional at weddings if it was just for better, in health, till whenever we want. That would not portray faithfulness. It's the, it's the part that says in sickness, and for worse, until death do us part, that really portrays faithfulness. Faithfulness is easy when everything's going well. I think I'm think not a massive marriage counseling expert by any, any means, but I'm pretty sure that most marriage breakdowns don't happen as, a, happen as a result of the marriage going really well. And both sides thinking, this is brilliant, I'm loving it. Generally, it's when one or both of the sides think, I'm not liking this anymore for worse. And that's where faithfulness kicks in. That's where faithfulness, the idea of saying, I'm going to stay trustworthy. I made that promise. I'm going to keep on going. That's faithfulness. And that's why I get a bit emotional at weddings, because I see that as a picture of the greatest faithfulness, which we'll look at in a little bit. It's the idea of sticking out and just to keep on going, saying, you know what, I've committed to this And whether I'm feeling on top of the world or at the lowest of the low, I'm going to keep going. And that's what happens when you walk by the Spirit. That's the kind of lifestyle you produce. We have some very, very faithful people at this church. Do you realize the number of faithful people it takes for you guys to be sitting on these chairs? The number of faithful people it takes to make sure that the hospitality stuff is set up. To make sure that there's toys and stuff in the creche. To make sure that there's teaching going on for the the kids. I mean... there's so many people who serve week in, week out, and that is a demonstration of what faithfulness is. Say, so, you know what, I'm committed to this church to the point where I'm going to carry boxes around and do it joyfully. If you bump into most sit-up people, they are not walking around going, oh, I can't be bothered to do this. They're walking around. If you, if you bump into Jamie when he's carrying around boxes, he's generally smiling and happy because he's a faithful guy. He's somebody who's saying, I'm going to keep, yep, I'm going to keep on going. Might not be the most glamorous job in the world, but... I've made a commitment to this church. I've made a commitment to these people to love them, and I'm going to do that. It's sticking out and going for it. Um, That's faithfulness. And as we'll see in a minute, Jesus is the ultimate example of that, which is the very reason faithfulness is even on this list. Second is gentleness. I don't know about you, but when I read gentleness, the first picture that popped into my mind was a kind of like wimpy guy sitting on a sofa stroking kittens. I don't... let just... It's not the kind of word that in our culture you're like, I don't know, this guy is so gentle. He's so, oh my word, I love the fact that he's gentle. And we kind of, I don't know, does anyone else have that, ki- uh, not necessarily kittens, but that kind of related imagery of a, a gentle person being slightly wimpy? Yeah, okay, okay, I'm not just slightly weird. I think that's the kind of thing we think about gentleness. We think, oh, it's just a bit wimpy. It's a little bit wet. You can't, like, you, 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 you never get angry. You're The kind of person you just end up walking over and gentleness is not being a doormat. Gentleness is not being wimpy for the very simple reason that I'm using a lot of people as examples today, but if you've ever hung out with Haja Sali, he is not a wimpy guy. You just have to go to a men's day to realize that when you're out of breath and he's running through mud and you're just like, oh, how'd you do that? He is not a wimpy guy, but he's gentle. He's the kind of person who, gentle, it's, it's in a sense kind of related to humility or meekness, He doesn't put himself before others. And if you hang out with him, you know here's a guy whose default is not, I'm going to be angry with you. His default isn't, I'm going to assert myself. His default is, I'm going to serve you. And he's gentle. He's the kind of person who is strong yet gentle. Jesus was like that. He doesn't jump to his rights. In fact, Galatians 6.1, I didn't put it on, on the screen, talks about if a brother is caught in sin, You who are spiritual, so you who are a bit more mature, should restore him, but in a spirit of gentleness. So you don't go storming up to him and say, how dare you do that? That's terrible. You should stop doing that right now and leave him in an absolute state. You go up to him, and in a way that is gentle, you say, look, let's help you through this. Let's help restore you through this. And that's the kind of lifestyle that walking by the Spirit ends up producing. Again, it's not glamorous. None of these fruits are particularly glamorous, but they're the kind of thing that God looks at on the final judgment and says, that, that's what I want. That is evidence of the work of the spirit in that person's life. And then finally, self-control. Self-control, probably maybe not the most favorite of the, of all of them. Most people don't like the idea of self-control. And in part, that might be because it's, it is kind of, it's challenging, In the sense that you think, how many times am I not self-controlled? But also because we might have this kind of picture when we think self-control. A guy sitting at a table with loads and loads of cakes in front of him and saying, I'm not eating them. I am not eating them. It's not happening. I'm not eating them. And kind of putting yourself under immense temptations and saying, no, it's not happening. That is part, but definitely not all, what self-control is. Self-control is, like, putting yourself into temptation is definitely not self-control. Sorry, I'll take that back. It's stupidity. Self-control, literally, is having control over yourself. Paul uses the same kind of expression in in 1 Corinthians 9. 9, He says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. An athlete's not the kind of person who sits at a table and says, I'm not eating the chocolate, I'm not eating the chocolate. An athlete's the kind of person who says, right, these are the kind of things I need to do in order to win that race. I need to get up at five in the morning, I need to go to the swimming pool and do 79 laps, and then I need to go to the gym and work out, and then I need to eat this disgusting food because I can't eat that nice food because otherwise my body's not going to cope on the race day. But they do that because they've got a bigger goal in sight. And self-control is training yourself to say, what are the kind of things and decisions in every single aspect of my life that I'm going to make that are going to help me to run the race? So what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 9, they train themselves and they ex- exercise self-control in everything. And he says, they do that for something that's perishable. They run as fast as they can. And in those days, all they would get is a little crown made out of leaves, which kind of withers within a few days. And Paul says, but we... Do that in a spiritual sense for a crown that lasts forever. So he says, So I beat my body and make it a slave. Instead of saying, My body and my desires are not going to have control over me. Because not because I'm going to force myself to sit in situations where I'm very highly tempted and say no, but because every single day I'm going to make little decisions and little calls that I've got the greater goal in mind. I'm not going to give in to that because I know I've got something bigger. That's what self-control is. It's controlling yourself. And that's not the kind of thing you have to grit your teeth to do. It's the kind of thing that happens as you walk by the spirit. So every single part of it, in, in a sense, it can be dangerous sometimes going through the list of the fruit of the spirit and expounding on them because people will often go, okay, well, I'm good at that. And I'm not good at that. And I'm not good. So I'll work really on those when actually the solution is, are you walking by the spirit? Are you in this trench or do you have a tendency to run over to over no man's land into the other trench? Because if that's what you're doing, no amount of gritting your teeth is going to help. Because if you're in this trench, the flesh is not going to let you do what the spirit wants. But if you walk by the spirit, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. And so that's what it is. It's not glamorous. It's not the kind of thing that people look at from the outside and say, that's what I want to be. But it is the kind of thing that as a Christian, as you mature, you look at that and think, I really want to be like that. I find the more I see humble people, the more I want to be humble. I think when, when I see someone who's been going with Christ for 60, 70 years, who is faithful, who's strong. Um, I had a bit of a kind of, I was listening to a sermon by a guy called John Hosier, who used to live in Brighton. And I think he'd been in that church for about 30 years. And he basically, he'd, he'd preach every few Sundays. He was, that was kind of the main thing he did. He was, a, he was a teacher and after 30 years he retired and then he went he went to another church and in his in his sermon at the end he basically said he said you know what people remember more for some stupid illustration about a dog that i made one day than about most of the sermons i've i've preached he, which everyone found funny and he said but If people remember that I was faithful to God, that I was faithful to my wife, and I was faithful to this church, that's enough for me. And then the next five minutes of the download are just absolute flaws because the church realizes here's a guy who's walked by the Spirit. His main interest was not, I want to preach to thousands. His interest was, I want to serve these guys because that's the kind of thing that the Spirit is producing in him. And the ultimate example of that is obviously Jesus. God and Jesus completely exemplify what it means to walk by the Spirit, and they completely exemplify faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I mean, faithfulness. Jesus' wedding vows to his church, for better or for worse, there is a lot of worse. The church, I mean, you just have to read the newspapers, the church is not the epitome of perfection. We've never claimed to be, but Jesus stays faithful to it. In sickness and in health, the, the one bit that changes is and death will never part us so that's that's the big that is a big difference between a human wedding and the wedding of Christ and the church is that Christ does not say till death do us part Christ says i'm sticking through and there'll be a point where for all eternity you will be with me and you will be completely cleansed he sticks through god is remembered in the old testament so many times as the God who's faithful. If you want to remind yourself of the faithfulness of God, have a go at reading through Nehemiah 9 at one point. It's a long chapter, but it's basically, the gist of it in a sentence is, we kept messing up, you kept being faithful. You brought us out of Egypt. We were stiff-necked. Our fathers rebelled against you, but you were righteous and you were faithful. We got taken away because of our sins, but still you returned us to our land because you are the great and merciful and faithful God. And the kind of faithfulness it takes to go to the cross is just mind-blowing. Where Jesus says, I've made a promise to my father, and I've made a promise to my future bride. I'm going to go to the, cro- the cross. That is in sickness and in health. That's absolute faithfulness. Gentleness. Jesus shows gentleness is not wimpiness. Jesus was not wimpy by any standards. Jesus knew how to get angry, but his default was gentle. He cried out, "Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy-laden, and I'll give you a good slapping." No, I will give you rest, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus knew what gentleness was; that was his default. So a bit like I again. I get I get emotional in lots of situations. I get emotional watching the Chronicles of Narnia whenever Aslan appears. Um, and one one scene that particularly gets me is when, so if you've seen the film or read the books, if you haven't, you haven't lived. But um, if If you have, you'll know what I'm talking about, where Aslan, this incredibly massive lion, is basically going away to be killed at the stone table, and um, Lucy and Susan are walking with him, and you have this massive beast, and they're just walking alongside with their hands on him. And I think that beast could crush them if he wanted to, but there's a gentleness about him, and you see that with Jesus. It's a bit like... Again, do, do a bit of Googling. Google lioness cub mouth on Google Images, and you will... <laughs> I know how to type my keywords. Um, you, you will find a picture of this gigantic lioness carrying a tiny cub in her mouth. Do you realize how much pressure you can get out of those jaws? But this cub hasn't got a scratch. Je- I see Jesus like that. He is powerful. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, but he's gentle. His default is, I'm going to be merciful and kind and gentle. But if anyone gets in the way of my church, I am taking them out. That's what Jesus is like. And that's the kind of lifestyle that if we live by the Spirit, it produces. And then self-control. Again, the cross. The kind of self-control it takes to hang in agony for five to six hours, knowing, I think, it doesn't take self-control to just be crucified. It takes self-control to be crucified as someone who knows that he can summon a legion of angels to come and deliver him. That he didn't have to go through it. That takes a lifetime of self-control, of making small decisions, of saying, no, I'm not going to go there. No, I'm not going to just ease out. Even though I know I'm going to be crucified in three years, I'm going to remain faithful to God. I'm going to exercise self-control like an athlete, and then I'm going to win the race. That's what Jesus does. He's the ultimate example of all of these different manifestations of the fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Jesus is the epitome of the manifestation of all of them. And that's why when you walk by the Spirit, you become more and more like Jesus. You become more and more like him. But at this point, some of you might be sitting here and thinking, okay, yeah, I get the walk by the Spirit thing, but it's just too tough. I just get this ongoing sense of this battle that's going on, which is true. There's a battle. This is battle imagery. But I want to finish on this one verse, verse 24. Those who belong to Christ have... Crucified the flesh, and uh, whereas it? and it, with its passions and desires, there's a there's a place for crucifying the flesh daily. That's what Jesus tells us to do: pick up your cross daily. But that's not what Paul's saying in this passage. He's saying those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. It's something that's happened. If you belong to Jesus, you are. It's not like you're in no man's land and being pulled both sides. Your default is walking by the Spirit. And it takes you the effort of going against who you are to walk out and go over into the flesh. So even though it might feel tempting and easy, you're in a position where actually your very nature now is to be someone who defaults to pleasing God. are a Christian, your deepest desire is to please him. And I just think a, a passage that I, I keep coming to again and again um, over the years, which we'll, we'll finish on, um, is 1 Corinthians 6. Paul's writing to the church, very similar kind of idea going on as, as in this passage. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That line in the middle, I mean, you you read the list and you think, oh, flip. And such were some of you. And if you read 1 Corinthians, you think, how can Paul say such were some of you? This chapter, in this chapter, he's telling the church off for supporting the fact that someone was sleeping with their their stepmother. And Paul says, such were some of you. Because Paul knows if you're in Christ, you have been cleansed, you have crucified the flesh. And so the battle that goes on is no longer being pulled by both sides equally. It's deciding to step out of the trench that you default to and going the other way. And so in that sense, the Christian battle is completely different to every other human being's battle. Every other human being is in the flesh trench and is stuck there. The Christian default is in the spirit trench and has to actively choose to go the other way. And I have to remind myself of that constantly. Because when you get temptation, where you think, oh, no, I just can't. I, I can't deal with that. It is to remind myself, this I have crucified the flesh already. It's already happened. And it's really important that we remember that because otherwise what happens is we get into this kind of grit your teeth mentality when actually you have crucified the flesh, which is exactly what enables us to keep crucifying it on a daily basis. If there wasn't the cross where we were crucified with Christ, we wouldn't be able to walk by the Spirit. But because the cross has happened and the fle- we have been crucified with Christ, and the flesh has been crucified, we can default to this particular trench, and we can walk by the Spirit. And I just want to end on that, so that we end on a sense of, actually, this isn't, this isn't some kind of constant fight that we just have to grit our teeth. This is something that has happened to us, and that our, our duty is to walk in line with that.